Welcome to a new year and a new episode of Career Buzz, unique radio career conversations that empower lives, enrich careers, and energize organizations. Be inspired right here on CIUT 89.5 FM internal and worldwide at CIUT.FM. Our program today is a Career Buzz production of Hoda's Career Info. I am Hoda Kilani, Certified Professional Career Coach and President of Right Career Fit, a private practice committed to increasing career literacy. My goal is to take you on a global journey, engaging you in career chats with international career professionals who will motivate you to take a chance and move forward with confidence. Later on Career Buzz, you will meet author, resume writer, and career coach, Dr. Norma Davila. But first, I'd like you to meet Dr. Ingo Routh, the founder of the School of Becoming, a school where he supports people in navigating life-changing career transitions. He is a professor at Rotman School of Management, the University of Toronto, and IE Business School in Madrid, teaching professional and leadership development. Ingo changed careers more than a dozen times, relocated 37 times, and sold everything he had three times. Fascinated by this experience, he developed a passion for professional development and found purpose supporting others going through career transitions. And today, Dr. Ingo will be talking about career transitions, what does it mean to go through midlife crisis, as well as about ageism. Let's go and see what Dr. Ingo Routh has to say. Thank you, Dr. Ingo Routh, for joining me today in Hadeskidid Info. It's a pleasure to have you uh, in this episode. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Ingo, part of this program is to share personal definitions of key career terms. You know, career terms that probably guided your career journey so far. The purpose is to educate people on through personal stories. So what would be your career term and how has it affected your career journey? Ooh, um, so I've been reflecting on this a lot. I think ever since I started out to study, I was always trying to find a way to make a difference. And uh, for me, that is encapsulated in purpose. So for me, purpose is a life structuring aim. So if you have purpose, it actually helps you to understand, okay, which career choices should I make or not make? Which direction should I go? Which country should I live in? Which opportunity should I say yes or no to? And in my life, I had way too many jobs. Um, I counted job titles once, it was over a dozen. And um, like I did, for example, I'm originally from Germany. I had to do military service. So I was joining the army armed forces. And then at another time I was a camera assistant and then I was a designer and I was a consultant and I was a um, doctoral student and I was a professor and I was a programmer. And all the time I had this question, this nagging question is like, why am I doing this? And so purpose became one of the things that I got really fascinated with um, because I wanted to understand, okay, what is that for me? Especially when you change a lot in your life, like what is your purpose, right? Because you could say, well, there's nothing. Yeah, so I've developed this fascination with purpose as a life structuring aim. And uh, here there are a couple of wonderful people out there, uh, William Damone, Stanford University, or Victor Strescher from um, 
I think uh, University of Michigan both did like great work on the idea or on this concept of purpose. If you want a definition, it's um, purpose is something that's meaningful to the self while being consequential to the world beyond the self. And that's a definition by William Damone. And I love this because it tells us that two separate parts or two parts that we have to figure out in order to have purpose in our lives. And by the way, it can show up in multiple ways. So it doesn't have to be big. It can be with your family or friends um, or in other instances. When it comes to my purpose, I realized that I love to explore. I love to learn new things and I love to engage in situations that are uncomfortable and, and challenging. That's meaningful to me. But then the question is, what is consequential to the world beyond the self? Like, where do you apply yourself to? For me, that has been or has become this field of career transitions because I had so many myself, so it's meaningful to me, but I also recognize this challenge, this unique period in time um, that we all thrive to get through and trying to like get through coming out in a better way than we started. Within this period of like high uncertainty and doubt, I think purpose can help us to navigate. For me, purpose is one of these terms that I wholeheartedly believe in, and I believe that it can guide us a little bit and help us find our ways to apply ourselves in a way that's meaningful to us and to others. I love how you connected the, the career purpose with the career transition, because really, we are always, I think, going through the transition, if we think about it. And, and your journey, it really it illustrates this, how you've really transitioned from so many opportunities to, to get to where you're at. So thank you for taking on this challenge of defining it as well and sharing your personal definition of career purpose. You have mentioned a little bit about your journey, and this would be typically my next question is, can you share with the audience your personal story and perhaps that part you would like to highlight and embedded with it any message that you think someone would benefit watching this program? Wow. Okay. The story is pretty long, so I will spare you like most of the details. But I think when it comes to the, the summary of it, so as I already mentioned, I had a couple of careers and jobs. I realized that the most interesting or like most engaging part was always the beginning. I love learning and I love a good challenge. And these two things are typically present when you start in a new career. However, over time, when I realized like, oh yeah, I got this and it works for me, I started to doubt what I was doing and I started to doubt that it was enough. And partially driven by this idea of purpose and partially driven by feeling I wasn't good enough, what I was doing wasn't good enough. I ventured into the next thing. So you could say like, it's like, I was driven by two things and I could express it as like, I was always wanting to like have a bigger impact. That would be very good. Or I could say, well, I was always driven by not feeling good enough. And both stories are equally true. And like, for me, that became kind of something that really fascinated me. And recognizing this also gives you some power because sometimes we get so addicted to our emotional state that we feel like we have to comply to it or like all the time. So I always felt like if I'm not challenged, if I feel like I'm good enough, there's something wrong with what I'm doing. That's a very like um, challenging thought to have. And like it has accompanied me for the most like for most of my life, through all of these challenges, through all of these changes, it wasn't the nicest thing because you, I always felt like I wasn't good enough. I wasn't there yet. My impact wasn't big enough. 
the only thing that helped me, and that was later in my, I would say my 30s, like later 30s, early 40s, made me like reflect on, okay, when am I, when I, when am I good enough? What is good enough for me? And when do I recognize that I have impact? And when do I recognize that I doing something worthwhile? Because if like I kept, I would have kept on going, I would have kept on changing careers and like moving on to the next thing. And I, I won't lie, it still kindles me like to think about like exploring different careers and opportunities. I kind of love doing that. But when I look back at my life, it got me to so many places and meet so many people, which I'm really thankful for. So there's an upside, but it's also a downside because it never allowed me to build anything. I never like had a real home. I like moved 37 times in like a period of like a little bit over 20 years, which is insane. I lived in seven countries. I made friends and then like tried to hold on to them, but moving to a different country, like I had to make new friends. So with with darkness comes uh, no what's the saying with um with light comes shadow kind of thing and so yeah like i think that's something that i took away from it that there's always two sides to anything that i do and what i do right now is i came to realize that i want to have something that um, is a little bit more lasting so with my girlfriend we bought a house and um, currently in my office, super happy about it. Uh, we um, recently like welcomed our son, our firstborn into this world, which is amazing. Uh, has been a challenging journey, but I'm so happy seeing him every day and like having something I can continuously dedicate myself to. And maybe it's the time of my life in terms of like how I changed as an individual. But right now I really enjoy like a steadiness and the ability to not have to change, but like think about transitions, think about change, think about purpose in a way that enables others and um, not like turning my life around once again. So yeah, it's like sometimes it's, I guess to end this and to answer your question sometimes it's just good where you are and you don't realize it until you embrace it well congratulations on the arrival of your baby thank you uh, you know what your journey is probably an adventure that many people dream of taking <laughs> <laughs> particularly when i get clients who feel stuck in where they are because they had been doing the same job for 10 mm -hmm. years or because they you know went to university and followed the uh, expected path uh, they'd be like, I want to do this, but I'm too scared. I don't know that I can step out and change right. this path right now, but I'm not happy where I'm at. Mm. You kind of reverse the trend by kind of doing all these exploration. Now you've gotten to a point where you're ready to settle down. So thank you for sharing that so people can see the two sides of, of doing things. You and I have talked about what I would call lifelong learning, but you taught me something new and you're calling it long life learning. So can you tell me your understanding of life, long life learning and where you got the idea for that? Yeah, so um, as you pointed out, I, I, I guess I love adventure. I still do. And in the beginning of 2020, I um, joined uh, an institution called the Modern Elder Academy in Baja, um, Southern California, which is Mexico. And this institution is dedicated to help people who are about to retire. Um, so... 50 onwards, so later midlife, if you like, or midlife, to navigate midlife. Because as it turns out in midlife, which is a very interesting period of time, we think in our modern society, we're fully developed, we are there. And Oda, I know a little bit about your story and like 
I know that we know we're not there yet, right? There's like somehow it felt like this promise that everything's going to be all right. And we are like just feeling great. And we're at the height of our careers. We have everything figured out and we have the perfect life. And we worked for this for the longest time. And then all of a sudden we achieved this. And then we realized like, yeah, was that it? Isn't there anything more? I had a conversation with one of the founders, Chip Conley, um, who loves to play with words. He's really remarkable when it comes to that. And he has written a couple of really interesting books. Can only recommend your like viewership to um, or listenership to actually check them out. Um, so we sat down and had a conversation and we wanted to like cast a new light on midlife because what comes to mind when we talk about the midlife for most people is midlife crisis. And it's like, okay, why is this happening? And is this happening? And is it really that bad? And when you look at it, midlife crisis is a very popular myth and a little bit of an excuse sometimes. If you look at life and how we experience midlife, um, it's actually not that bad. Most of us are pretty happy. Um, when you look at the U-curve of happiness, which is one of the things um, that we did, uh, like uh, mentioned in that white paper, which can you can download, by the way, just Google it, or um, maybe you can include it in the show notes for that. Um, you see that there is like a, a low point in happiness over our lifetime development, which is somewhere around 46. And so what happens is until 46, like happiness declines. And then after 46, happiness increases steadily. It's not a lot, but enough for us to say, well, you know, if it's, if it's, is it really that bad? And like, do we have to be afraid of age or aging? Is the journey really over or are there new things coming? And when we looked into the research, we realized there is a lot to learn and a lot to discover and a lot to do when you uh, progress into later stages of life. Unfortunately, as a society, we haven't embraced that. As I said before, we thought like we had reached our peak in our 40s. And that's like given like what we had in the past in terms of life expectancy, where people live to 60s, that's totally fine. But nowadays, like you live or you can potentially live to 100 years old. And so you like at 50, like have 50 more years. That's a lot of lifetime. So what do you want to do with it? And we said, because nobody taught us that, nobody educated and how to navigate life post like your first education, your first like maybe marriage or relationship and house, which is the stereotype, like we never got to venture on. And long life learning is learning for a long life, learn, learning to live a long and satisfying life. And um, Chip Connolly invited me to write this white paper with him when I was down in Baja, California, and we dedicated um, a couple of months to read all the paper, read all the research on midlife and um, like try to paint a new picture on what that period could be like and what are the advantage actually of aging. So um, that's a little bit about long life learning and how it's different from lifelong learning, which is continuously educating yourself, usually in regards to like keeping up with the labor market. And for us, it was more about continuously educating yourself in order to live a fulfilled and hopefully um, happy life. This is very interesting research. And yes, I would love to share it. The reality is the social uh, environment we live in does not welcome us working beyond 60 or maybe sometimes 65 if we're lucky. And we're then cast to the like 70. Who's going to hire a 70 year old? But I, your perspective is let's focus on the happiness and, and the contentment in life, I guess, from that perspective, the long life learning becomes. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's a legitimate question, especially given the current environment that we are in. But if you look at the overall trends, like our societies are becoming older, which means that people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s have more and more say because they represent bigger parts of the population. It won't be a change overnight, but it will change bit by bit by bit. Further, like we have a decline in talent. So right now, there are a couple of jobs where people desperately look for people that can fill these roles. And we also see a trend from, as Chip Conley puts it, from software to soft skills. And we know for a fact that people with more life experience have more of those. You could take all this and argue that in the long term, like we will need people who are like more advanced in age to take positions, to take responsibility, to share their wisdom, to tap into their unique abilities and skills and also develop them. It's also responsibility. But I believe that given what is going on right now is like there will be more demand for people and this outdated image of like we can or should retire because first it was like you can't retire with 60 and it was great. But now it's like you have to retire with 60 something. And you're like, really? That was it? That is something that will get hopefully eradicated. Plus, there are plenty of programs um, that we found in our research that already offer education to support people who work through this transition to find their encore career. So if you Google encore career, there's a lot of fantastic work that has been done and uh, a lot of programs uh, ranging from like nonprofits to universities like Harvard, for example, that offer these programs for people to continue their uh, development and their engagement in the world and apply all they have learned, all their wisdom, all their skills and abilities in new ways beneficial to themselves and society. This is going to be great news for many of my clients who were retired from their jobs at 60 or 65. And then and they're thinking they worked in professional, you know, as professionals. And so they don't want to go work in retail or baristas or, uh, but they can't seem to find that balance uh, of what do I do now? I'm 65 and I'm home. I still want to stay like cognitively alert and work, right. but no one will hire me. So I will use that. Encore, you said, what did you? Is it yeah, Encore? Encore would be the term that I would Google. Um, there is uh, a handbook of Encore uh, for Encore careers by Marcy Uproller, I think, a matter at uh, MEA. So that is a book like worth checking out, I think. And then there are a couple of programs you can find when you Google Encore uh, Korea. I'm sure there's like, I think um, there are a couple of books that um, where you can read. And I, I would challenge if you, if you're listening to us right now, and if you like have this thought, like there is no way there is like society, like to society, I'm, I'm not like somebody that can contribute anymore. And you have these stereotypes internalized. Um, I think one thing that helped me in my life was always to challenge the stereotype because I make the stereotype happen by adjusting my actions to it. And to give you an example, when I like I was a designer at one point and being a designer in Germany and being dyslexic, the likelihood of you doing a PhD is pretty low. In fact, most people will tell you it's not possible. Your education doesn't um, put you uh, up for scientific research. You have to do another degree or you have to whatever, but it's not possible for you to do a PhD. That's what I got told. Now, by accident and stubbornness, I discovered that there was an exemption to the rule, which was if 
any professor at any university um, thinks you are worthy or capable of pursuing a PhD, they can make an exemption for you. But that wasn't public knowledge at the time, and I still don't think it is. So like through that, I found a loophole. I found a way for myself. But if I would have fall prey to like the stereotype and the idea of as a designer, you're not capable of, or as a dyslexic person, you shouldn't pursue, right? I wouldn't have gotten to where I am. And I think there's another thing that, that plays into this. We are largely trained to perceive as, or as if our personalities are fixed and as if like our past is our future. And if you really believe that, then, well, that might be a pretty bleak outlook on life because it means that your past dictates your future and dictates what you can do next and also limits what you can do next. But through all our life, we have been changing. We have been adapting. We have been like venturing into new careers, into new relationships, into new like society, parts of society or um, into new um, roles, like socially as well as professionally. And if you look at your own life, your own life speaks a, like a language of transition, of change, of development, of your ability to adapt and develop yourself. I believe that once we see that for ourselves, we can find the strength to challenge these like stereotypes and can find ways to engage. And yes, it might not be the traditional kind of labor market and applying for job kind of game that we played throughout our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on. But there might be other ways to engage and find opportunities to engage. And as I mentioned before, there are like new opportunities and ways to find these uh, possibilities for us. Uh, well, you gave an incredible example of uh, stepping out of these stereotypes. Uh, but and usually I, I know that as, you, as I hear you talking, you know, with children, we say, you know, you can't step out of that stereotype, but we rarely apply it to the older generation where, you know, you're in retirement, you can be outside of that stereotype of retirement. But I mean, you're not that old. You're <laughs> not into the 50 plus generation. And so no, I'm not. Uh, I am uh, impressed that you have that, you know, advanced thought to be able to be a part of that institute that you joined and uh, see things ahead of time. But perhaps I it's think... your adventurous experience. <laughs> yeah, I think um, there's always ageism and age is a matter of perspective. When I started my PhD with, um, I think, 34 at the time, or 32, can't remember, I considered myself old because everybody around me was in their early 20s, just like had their masters and continued with their education. And like, I felt like, oh, my God, like, will I be able to do this? And Oda, I know you, you started also like going back to university later in life, right? And there's all these doubts that come up. And like, will I be able to learn? Will I be good enough? Like, oh, they're, they're so advanced. They have all these, like, they're so agile in their minds. They have been learning for the last 10 years. And I have been out of school or out of university for 10 or 20 years, right? So these things are a natural part of pursuing anything new. And they are meant to keep us safe. And I think this is where most of us struggle a little bit because we think that our doubts and fears are justified. And to a large extent, there might be. but they are not meant to empower us. They're meant to keep us in a safe environment that allows us to continue the way we have been. And I think when it comes to any transition at any age, like the hard part is not necessarily to find a new thing. 
The hard part is to work on yourself and develop yourself to become that new thing. And if I have been doing something for the last 20 years or last 10 years or 30 years, then it becomes incredibly hard because what I have to do is I have to challenge myself, my understanding of self, my identity, and with that, a whole lot of the security that I experience in life. And so I think that when you want to push beyond like retirement and say like, you know what, like I'm ready to do more, I have more in me, then the challenge is not only that like to fight ageism and become recognized as somebody that can still contribute, but also to question like, how do I want to contribute? How do I want to apply myself and kind of engage in this discovery process that allows you to find your strength and your kind of um, dedication in moving forward? Because it might not be the role that you're used to have. It might not be the status that you used to have. It might not be the security that you used to have. You might start somewhere where you feel like insecure where you feel like challenged, where you feel like you're back at square one. And I think here, like the thinking has to change a little bit, at least it's from my own experience. What I realized is that when I started anything new, I was thinking about the end goal. I wanted to be X, a PhD. I wanted to be a designer. I wanted to be have a certain rank in the military, whatever it was. What I was thinking less about was the experience which makes 99% of the time that I need to go through to get there. And recognizing that the experience that I need to go through and like go through every day is like the thing I'm like actually wanting. So to give you an example, it's very, it's very abstract, but the reality of doing research these days or work at a university is the motto publish or perish. So you have to publish a lot no matter if it makes sense to you or not, but this is your currency in that environment. What I didn't understand when I started my PhD was that, well, I had to publish, I had to write. I had, it was like one thing to have ideas and learn, which is part of it and do interviews and like travel the world and like engage with different communities, which is super fascinating. But then there's also this other side of having to write. In the beginning, or still remember, I had this interview um, my supervisor asked me, do you like to read? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, do you like to write? And I said, yeah, but I knew it was a lie <laughs> at that point. And then I was thinking, okay, like at some point I have to do that. And I had to find my way to like writing. And that asked of me to change my attitude towards writing. And that was a tricky thing because for the most time or uh, longest period of my life, I believed that writing wasn't necessary, um, that I was bad at writing, and that it was something that's not pleasant. And so conflicted in that situation, I had to find a way to actually make writing into something that I like to do. And that was challenging. And that's just an example of how any change at any age requires us to question ourselves, to question our beliefs and identities. Because to that point, I believed like I'm not a writer and I disregarded writing. And part of my identity was built on that disregard. And all of a sudden I had to say, well, I like writing and I had to admit that I'm not good at it. And I had to believe that I can become better at it. And that was difficult. But luckily, like I had great uh, supervisors, a great environment and like one 
amazing educator at the university. She gave uh, or she taught um, a structured writing course. And through her, I discovered my love for writing because she taught me how to write and how writing was not a mystery and how I could be capable of doing great academic work and becoming a better writer. But like it had to start with frustration and anxiety and feeling insignificant and feeling like out of place, a little odd, like I was winging it and it didn't feel great. But once I applied myself and I started to engage in the journey and realized how I made, like became better step by step by step and celebrated these small victories, I started to enjoy the process. I started to enjoy the way more. And all of a sudden, like the way became the goal, like the engagement became what satisfied me, not so much the result of doing a PhD. And I still remember one day, one of my supervisors, he was like, Ingo, we got to have the conversation. Why are you doing this? Are you doing this for the title or are you doing this because you want to create something worth reading? That was a kind of a really smart question. Uh, Jan, my supervisor at the time, asked me. And I said, well, I want to write something worth reading. And so I owned it to myself as well as my supervisor, as well as to the community I was researching and like wanting to support to write something worth reading that was insightful and to the best of my abilities. And I think that was another thing that encouraged me and supported me on that path because I knew, knew that every time I improved my writing, I would be better able to serve that community. Well, thank you for giving the detailed example. And I appreciate that as you're talking, I'm thinking of my own journey. And like you're saying, you already have your own fears and anxieties about moving forward in that challenge that you chose to take, to take on. But you really need those supportive people around you, for sure, to tell you you can do it. And so you can push the naysayers out of the way it's who say <laughs> you can't do it. This was a very, very good detailed answer. Thank you. These were all the questions I have for you, uh, Dr. Ingo, today. I appreciate your time. But was there something you would like to wrap up, some sort of advice for those listening? One more tip you gave a lot already so we can wrap up with. One tip that I started to give recently um, when it comes to career transitions and doing the thing that you love doing. I think for me, going through my transitions and having the experience that I had when working with people on a topic, enabling my students and reading the research, I think it comes down to two things. First of all, it's showing up authentically and then finding a room that you are appreciated in for who you are authentically, and that wants to engage you based on who you are authentically, which requires opening a lot of doors. So what I mean by that is that we are very trained to look for the solution, the next job out there, but it actually starts with us. It starts with us understanding what makes us happy, what feels meaningful, what do I love to engage in, what, do I, what am I passionate about, what kind of like satisfies me and makes me happy while doing it, not just for the result, but for the, for the experience of engaging in that. And that does, is not, usually not a job. It's, it comes down to values and strength and things you love doing. It could be writing, it could be painting, it could be talking to people, having engaging conversations, and it could be values like freedom or like equality or whatever your values are. So once you have that, once you know what that is, it's on us to show up authentically as that person. And with every room that we enter in that way, and that could be a conversation you have with a friend or a conversation you can have with a stranger or like in an interview or like online, with every conversation, 
you practice yourself, you will be seen and invite others into your life that see you for who you are. And if you're truly authentically yourself, and that's my belief, I believe that people engage you based on who you are. And so if you get into the right room, if you get into the right environment and people see you for who you are authentically, people see how you are passionate about what you're talking about, how you want to engage, if it resonates with them, they will start to engage you. If it doesn't resonate with them, you will see the signs. And then it's not about like being sad. It's more about like for me, at least recognizing, okay, I'm not at the right, in the right room. Let's do them and myself a favor and let's move to the next room because they're in a definite amount of rooms. And I believe that these two things, showing up authentically and finding the right room, are key to actually find a fulfilling and meaningful and happy life. So that's the last thing I want to share. This is great advice. And throughout your message, like throughout the whole conversation today, it's really about getting to know yourself. It, you just said, show up authentically who you are, not to be afraid to show who you are. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Ingo. I'm sure we'll have more Kiddish conversations, you and I. I appreciate your being on this program. Oh, I'm very much looking forward to that. And um, thank you so much for having me and uh, for inviting me to share a little bit of what I've experienced with your questions. You are listening to a Kiddish Bus production of Hoda's Kiddish Info on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide at CIUT.FM. Stories show that who you are matters. I'm your host, Hoda. Before continuing on with today's show, I would like to remind listeners about Career Buzz's other episodes of inspiring career stories. To check them out, go to careercycles.com and click podcast or subscribe to the podcast Career Buzz on your favorite podcast app. And please do leave us a review. For more career info, have a listen to past episodes, including my career chats with Denis Gravel and Marianne Bernard. My next guest today is Dr. Norma Davila. Dr. Norma Davila has more than 16 years of experience handling changes across the life cycle and over 11 years providing career management services. She is passionate about facilitating her clients' transformation into more self-confident professionals who have a deeper grasp of their strength and the value they bring to organizations. Norma co-founded the Human Factor Consulting Group with Wanda Pina Ramirez in 2012 to provide human resources and talent management outsourcing services. Currently, Norma also provides career coaching services for partners of relocated employees and has written blogs for REA partners in transition. Dr. Norma is the co-author of several books, including Cutting Through the Noise, The Right Employee Engagement Strategies for You, Passing the Torch, A Guide to the Succession Planning Process, and What Works in Talent Development, Effective Onboarding a book that we will be talking about today. Dr. Norma today will also share career tips as well as her expertise on career ownership and so much more. Thank you, Dr. Norma Davila, for joining me today on Hoda's Career Info. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. Part of this program, 
Norma, is to share personal definitions of key career terms. As you know, mine is career literacy. I usually challenge my guests to choose one term that reflects how they view their work and the services you offer. What is your word for today? My word for today is career ownership. And it is that word because I've owned my career through its several reinventions over the years. And I encourage my clients to do the same. What do I mean by that? It's not going to come to you. It's not going to get to you unless you go out and reach out either to people, for positions, for workplaces, wherever you want to be. The reason for that being my own experiences, which I think are important for my clients because I've reinvented my career several times. And now that I think of it, even when I was starting, I was reinventing my career because I started out as a college professor. That's what I thought I wanted to be when I finished my graduate degree. So I was all set for that. Then I got into program evaluation, which opened to me the world of federal funding and grants and doing things that had a greater impact than what I was achieving in the classroom. So after doing that, and there's a first reinvention, um, I wasn't quite into being back at the classroom when their funding ended. So gaining, uh, rather after having gained significant experience in project management, I got certified as a project management professional. That was my first certification. That enabled me to get validation in sectors other than academia, because unfortunately, a lot of people think that college professors are not grounded on the real world. And if anything, I've been too practical all my life. Sometimes it backfires, but that's who Norma is. And um, having my PMP allowed me to enter into pharmaceuticals after a short, uh, I would say, work experience working remotely when that concept didn't even exist. There was this company in Maryland that allowed me to work from Puerto Rico. And I would just travel at least two or three times a month, which was not a problem because with the grants I was uh, administering before, I, I was used to doing that. And for me, it's been really important to keep part of me in Puerto Rico, but also stay connected to the States. That's critical. And I've managed to, to be able to do it all this time. So I got into the pharmaceuticals then and working on organizational development. I've been doing systemic education reform. I was changing systems, doing professional development, working with people in all kinds of roles. So that was the closest I could get to what I was doing that made sense outside of where I was working originally. That position led to banking. There goes, I've lost track of the reinventions by now, but there goes another one. And where I least expected to end up getting into career management work was at the bank. When um, some of the listeners may remember the assisted acquisitions by some banks of others during the financial crisis of a few years ago. The bank I was working for was one of the banks acquiring other banks. So after bringing in everybody from the acquired bank, the one I worked for decided it's time for us to start looking for who's going to stay and who's not. And there was a major outplacement program in place run by another company. I didn't have a clue what that was at the beginning. And someone at some point told me, why don't you talk about resumes? Huh? I looked really puzzled, just like I do it right, do it right now. 
oh, you love to do research. You like reading. You're good. You're good at writing. You're going to be great. And it was like, okay, I'll give this a shot. But the challenge was going beyond the script. I had to make it my own, otherwise it wouldn't have worked. And it did. Even with the limited resources I had back then, I connected with the audience and I felt that I was doing a service to them, helping them see their careers, even in that short period of time, see their careers differently. After I left the bank and started doing consulting work in other areas, my business partner and I were senior consultants for Aon. We were contractors. And there goes the story again. Aon was doing a lot of outplacement work. I've just joined the company as a consultant. And somebody tells me, Norma, you're great at doing research. You're good at writing. Why don't you just do this outplacement presentation and you start working with us in this area? And I was like, okay, here we go again. How can I make this my own? Again, same result. Fortunately, I was able to establish a contact with the audience. A lot of the people there who were under undergoing this very difficult experience connected with me. That personal connection that's really important for me to be able to help people in their careers at whatever stage they are. But of course, I wasn't going to stay only following a script. I became certified as a professional resume writer and later as a professional career coach to round up my professional credentials and to get the knowledge and the experience that I wanted to get. And I've been doing that for the last, I mean, doing resume writing and career coaching for about 10 years now. So that's my story of how I got to where I am. And the ownership part comes through because all the time I've been asking myself, so what do I want to do next? A lot of people thought that I was out of my mind when I left a tenured position at a university. A lot of people thought that I was out of my mind going out, starting a new business with a business partner, both of us in our 50s. I didn't care. I wanted to follow my own instincts and my instincts were aligned with my own background as a developmental psychologist and what I could bring to people and what I wanted to do and find my way to make sure that I could tell my clients based on my own experiences, go take that course, do that professional development. What are you waiting for, for that certification? I've done it. So one step at a time. Thank you, Dr. Norma, for blending your career term with your story. I love that, how you showed us some examples of what does it mean to take charge of your career or career ownership as the term that you would like to use. I also liked how you said, I had to make it my own. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you shared your story because that was going to be the follow-up question oh. to the career term. So that's perfect. So I'm going to just dig deep into that and how would you recommend the audience, anyone listening or watching today, make it their own? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? It all starts with asking yourself, what do you want to do? What are you good at? And what do you need to do to get there? These may seem simple questions, but they really require a lot of self-analysis and a lot of introspection. Because I may want to go to fly to the moon, but I'm lousy at dealing with movements and gravity or lack of gravity or whatever. So I know I'm not going to be quite cut to be an astronaut, but maybe there's something else I can do. So it's really look, and I know I'm picking up a weird example, but what I'm saying is that sometimes come, I mean, clients come with unrealistic expectations of what they can do because they're following a trend or somebody told them that they would be 
good at something. And when they start looking at themselves and going through the process with me, they realize that their heart is in another place and they can be really good at something else. And that's the way they want to go. Maybe something they wanted to do all along and they just didn't get the chance or they had personal or financial circumstances that did not allow them to pursue that dream. It's based on knowing yourself, knowing what you want to do and figuring out how, what do I need to go, do to get there? And maybe a professional can help in that. Not everybody goes through that, but sometimes career coaches can help. I believe it's part of what we do. Absolutely. Helping our clients get to know themselves and then yes. be able to branch from there. Right. Yes. I love it when they go, I didn't realize that I had done so much or wow. I didn't know that I had contributed so much to a business. It's, it's a totally different experience from their own. And that's when they start owning who they are and owing, owning their careers, rather. Absolutely agree. I'm going to take you on a different topic. You have co-authored several books, and can I congratulate you on that. They're all very important topics. The one I would like to pick on is uh, the book titled Effective Onboarding. Oh, yes. Book number three. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I want to pick on it because very few companies see value in, in having onboarding programs. And I would like to have a chat about it to bring it to the open, particularly now that we see many of our clients trying to think, what do I want to do next? We are, we are seeing that and people leaving jobs and taking on new jobs in the mm -hmm. market. So why should employers uh, introduce an onboarding program? And again, according to your expertise, how important are they for employee engagement? How can an employer see value in that? Absolutely. Let's get first into clarifying the difference between employer, new employee rather, orientation and employee onboarding, which are two concepts that get mixed up a lot. In our research, we found that many companies provide new employee orientations, and they call them onboarding. And they think that because they go through a checklist, throw out employees 100 documents, maybe have them see a video or two, maybe someone, someone from senior management comes and says, hello, that's the end of it. They're ready to do their jobs. Not quite. Onboarding entails getting those employees ready to be able to perform their roles at their best. It's not a one-day deal. It takes an investment, as you were saying, and it also takes preparing those people who are going to be involved in the process to actually facilitate it. I'll get concrete again. <laughs> we're talking about different types of onboarding too. I should clarify that. It's the new employee, the one who just gets in shiny eyed and starting happy because he or she got the job. And it's also the new to role employee who needs onboarding. The one who's been doing something for three, five years, maybe, maybe more, and is shifting to another department or another role or doing something else, it's a new way of doing things, even in the same culture. That employee has the advantage that he or she knows the culture of the place better than somebody who just came off the street. And that in itself means that the programs have to be differentiated, but they're still going to have a lot of components in common, especially when it comes to getting from the general onboarding to the role-specific onboarding 
And that manager or supervisor has to play a critical role in mentoring, guiding, checking in on the employee, and providing those tools that the employee will need to be successful. Let's just get an example of something that happens. Actually happened to me at one point. I walk in, very excited. I'm starting my job, my new job. My computer wasn't set up. So what was I supposed to do? I started hesitantly mingling and trying to meet people because on top of everything else, my manager was out of town. So I was a little lost. Many employees in that situation decide, this is not for me. Nobody cares about me. I'm not valued. All I'm going to be doing here is sitting in a cubicle doing who knows what, maybe for three days, if somebody decides to pay attention to me. Nobody reaches out. Nobody takes them to lunch. Nobody shows them where the key facilities are. If they're new to the area, where can they get um, cash or where can they buy a burger, whatever they want, or take them somewhere? That sensation of I'm lost and abandoned is what causes a lot of the quitting that we're seeing. It ends up costing uh, employers more than actually setting up an onboarding program that starts when the employee is selected and starts bringing in the culture and dealing with the paperwork, yes, but what's most important is the relationships and making sure that that employee feels welcome and starts integrating into the culture of the business, then moving into the department, learning the unspoken rules, making sure that everything is set up. My first day would have been totally different if I had found my computer ready, my access is available, my manager or some designated person there to welcome me, to take me to lunch, to show me around the department, as opposed to what happened. I stayed. I did not quit. Still, (laughs) other people do. And now that we're shifting into this online onboarding mode because of the way we've been working over the last couple of years, my business partners and I argue, mine arguments in those, um, not only in the book, but in other publications we've had about onboarding, is that we propose hybrid arrangements as much as possible. People still need that human touch. See people there, be available. Don't rely only on the click, click, click of online, which unfortunately happens for a lot of people. Make it personal. Have a meeting just like we are having now. Talk about different things. Find out interests. Find out what motivates those employees so that they feel that somebody's caring about them and is helping them to get ready to do their best in their uh, new roles, whether they're new to the organization or new to the position, as I said earlier. And also, don't expect miracles overnight. Lay out those expectations clearly at the beginning, but give me a chance to learn what I'm, what I'm supposed to be doing. Guide me along the way. Tell me what I'm doing right, just like you're going to tell me what I'm not doing right. And allow me to give you input, to, I mean input, sorry, to make this better for whoever comes along later. Very, very good examples. And I thank you for sharing them. Because uh, I was thinking with online boarding, that was a little bit more tough on some of my clients mm-hmm. who get new jobs and oh, yeah. sometimes receive a laptop and just don't know where to start because they're expected to work online. So these are very good examples of how employers and companies can now support their clients online. And I like the hybrid idea. I do believe in the value of the human touch as well. It always helps to have somebody you can reach out to, that buddy who can tell you all the things that the manager is not going to say, <laughs> can walk you through all the internal dynamics of the place you just joined. And if it's hybrid, it's even better. 
Yes, more and more we're seeing the value of mentorship on the job yes. nowadays. Yeah, and mentorship doesn't have to be age-related one way only. Because we usually think about the older employees helping the new, the younger employees. And experience comes in all kinds, I mean, sizes and shapes and years and whatever we want to call them. So let's welcome that opportunity to learn from the younger employees, just like from the older. Absolutely. And I always go to the younger people for IT support <laughs> whenever I get, I get stuck on something. So they know a lot more than I ever will. Dr. Norma, as a certified and experienced career development strategist, what do you mean when you say that you guide clients through targeted introspection? How do you help clients go through this process? We talked a little bit about getting to know yourself, but what does targeted introspection mean? For me, targeted introspection means looking at yourself and looking at your career, but not a quick look. Getting into what you like, what you don't like, what has worked in the past, what has made you feel motivated to move forward, what haven't you liked in the past, what do you celebrate when you do something for you important that is. Because that, that tells you what, what matters in the workplace. Some people just tell me, oh, I just do my job and tell me right there that they're motivated to do the work. Also, we get into what would you look to, I mean, like to do different? Where would you like to be doing it? Where do you see yourself? The famous question of where do you see yourself in the future, but more focused on in terms of what you want to do. It's not the, I want the next step in the career ladder or whatever it's, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to be dealing with groups. Oh, I want to be dealing with a social impact. And then we, we have to start looking for different positions because if you want to do work with that has a social impact, maybe it's outreach for a company. Maybe it's community relations, what you're interested in. And from those answers, we start weaving the narrative of where they've been and where they want to be. And on top of that, we look at the values, which and what aspects are negotiable or not negotiable for the career and for the personal lives to put together what it is that they want to do now and what they're moving towards in the future. So it's really a lot of give and take. It's sending not a hundred questions because nobody's going to fill them out, but some guiding prompts so that when we meet, we go through them as far as we can. If we got through three, we got through three. If we got five, we got five, however many, and maybe some more questions are going to come up. Usually my clients don't go through the whole guidelines that are prepared, but again, they're only a foundation for what we do in the, same, in the first meeting. And it opens their eyes to what they've been doing, their achievements, what they're proud of, and what they want to bring to that next role or, or that next position. The, the story just comes out from our conversations. It is really the human connection what's at the heart of it. I agree, because when we talk about it, it just sounds so simple. Like I can look back at my own skills and figure out what I did and how I can put it together. But there's really that questioning and that human connection that looks at things from a different perspective as well that helps yes. our clients move forward. Absolutely. 
And it's using sometimes my weird examples, like my astronaut that astronaut that wasn't quite ready to fly to the moon. But those weird examples actually resonate with my clients. They help them get grounded. Yes. And it's discussions that such as these one, like I think of narrative coaching, it brings out all of that when we talk to clients. Absolutely. Yes. Dr. Norma, I encourage my clients to always take on new challenges or projects that gets them out of their comfort zone. (laughs) What do you have going for the next few months that you hope to accomplish? Well, uh, there are a couple of things going on. One of them is that I'm very happy because I've started to expand my practice stateside. I'm establishing partnerships with um, businesses that are dedicating to themselves to career management. So I've met a lot of people virtually. The pandemic allowed me, or rather facilitated, that I met people through the social media and through other organizations with whom I've begun to do projects that, again, take me to maintain those ties with the stateside audiences that I very much have managed to do somehow in all my roles since I started working, which are so important for me. So it's expanding that aspect of my business. And also I'm beginning to look at career management programs that would bring together all the different features we've been talking about today. Because a lot of my clients come in because they think they need a resume or they think it's a glorified job description and then it becomes something else. So based on those experiences, I'm putting together something that maybe some people would help, I mean, rather would help some people make sense out of what all our field is about and what they could do in the short, medium and long term. So we'll see how that comes out. With your experience and research and having experienced several jobs, I'm looking forward to what will come out from that program. Congratulations on taking the step. Thank you. Thank you. These are all the questions I have for you today. Is there anything you would like to add to wrap up and share with the audience, with job seekers, perhaps who are reflecting on their jobs or looking for jobs right now? Well, I'd like to encourage our listeners to take a deep look at themselves, look at their careers, and not necessarily rush out the door to make a change, but initiate that reflection and own their careers and see where they go with that. And like we've said before, reach out to career management professionals when they're ready and find one with whom they fit well. Because this is like all relationships. You have to click with your client and your and your coach. Otherwise, it just doesn't work to get into the deeper analysis that, that has to happen to get all those results that we want. So that would be my last point and message to your audience, Dr. Oda. Thank you so much for being on Hoda's Career Info and for this great message. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Hoda's Career Info on Career Buzz right here on Canada's unique radio conversation that empower lives, enrich careers, and energize organizations. CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide online at CIUT.FM. I am your host, Hoda Kilani, founder of Right Career Fit, and you can find out more about me at rightcareerfit.com. Thank you to my guests, Ingo Rouse and Norma Davila, for supporting my mission to increase career literacy 
and for supporting you in your career journey. Ingo and Norma shared valuable career tips. Which tip appealed to you and why? You can connect with Dr. Ingo Rouse and Dr. Norma Devila on LinkedIn. Catch Career Buzz every Wednesday at 11 a.m. The views, information, and or opinions expressed during this series are solely those of the guests involved and do not necessarily represent an endorsement from the series provider. This is it for today's episode of Career Buzz and Hoda's Career Info. Thank you so much for listening.